This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. Let us help you escape your mind. All right, folks, welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. We have episode number 146 today. Uh, we're going to be sitting with Anthony Tyler to discuss his new book, Dive Manual. Um, it's it's actually really good. I just started it. Um, I'm excited to finish it. And uh, you can check out the link down below. Uh, also, check out our website, mindescapepodcast.com. We are also on Patreon at patreon.com slash mindescapepodcast. For $2 a month, you'll get some exclusive content. And, uh, yeah. Oh, also check out indrasweb.org. It's the new app that we just built to connect open minds. So if you like the topics we talk about on this podcast and, um, some of our other friends podcasts that you know that we're associated with, check us out, um, at indrasweb.org, sign up, you will get an alert once it goes live. And, uh, yeah, without further ado, what's going on, Anthony, how are you? I'm doing real well. Uh, thanks for having me here. Oh, of course. Thanks for joining. I know we tried to do this before. I think you reached out in like April and then the uh, pandemic hit and we kind of lost All hell touch. broke yeah, I mean, yeah, all hell broke loose. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I'm glad we set this up because uh, I, I definitely dig your book. And uh, one thing I just want to point out too, the very beginning of your book, uh, there's like three pages that are just full of thank yous to people in your life that have either helped you or family members and stuff like that. I th- actually thought that that was really cool. I don't see that enough from, you know, all the books that I read. So I actually kind of felt like, oh man, this is a good dude. So thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah. And I mean, the, uh, as, as anyone can see reading the book, um, it is, uh, coming of age is a little bit of a tropey way to say it, but I mean, in in, in a, it doesn't just pertain to that. But I mean, I really was coming of age during a lot of the experiences in the book, and uh, if uh, if I hadn't had good influences in my life, yeah, I mean, it would have been dead from the from the onset. So so yeah, I mean, um, yeah, there's a lot of people to thank. I mean, I did all the research and the writing, but you know, you, you gotta you gotta love friends and family, right? Right. And so the full title is Dive Manual, Empirical Investigations uh, of Mysticism. So that is an interesting title because it actually kind of spells out what you're kind of do, trying to do with the book, which is look at these things that are very subjective and anecdotal and kind of a more um, scientific approach or maybe just a little bit more skepticism in terms of being able to kind of peel back and understand what's going on from like a mechanistic standpoint. Yeah, yeah. Well, very well said. Yeah, on point. And 
you know, I, I, I'm a mystically oriented person. I've always been interested in like Fortean phenomena and uh, philosophy, comparative religion. But I mean, when, when you're, uh, when you're trying to really get to the heart of matters such as these, I guess, um, I don't know, for me, it's always seemed that, um, and I mean, for the best sources that I've come across for any of this stuff, like skepticism is key This skepticism, not being so much that like you're trying to, I don't know, skepticism often has like a, a divisive kind of context yeah. to it, but it's, it really doesn't need to be. And, uh, it often shouldn't be taken that way. And, you know, when you're gathering research in general, um, oftentimes it's the, uh, the opposite point of view that can help encapsulate concepts so much better. You know, like Aristotle had so much to say about Pythagoras, um, but he, uh, he didn't, he thought Pythagoras was a little kooky, but there's, uh, we know a lot more about Pythagoras because of Aristotle. So just one example. And, uh, you know, yeah, so I definitely have, I have my own beliefs, uh, but when it comes to research, I mean, the only thing that separates this book ultimately from like some just some new age drivel or some uh, high minded occultist ego trip is uh, is research in the long run. You know, like you don't I, I didn't get that vibe at all because I see a lot of that even within like the psychedelic community and some of the esoteric community, even the UFO community. You get these ego maniacs oh, yeah. that that think that they dictate or deserve something and uh, I didn't get that vibe at all I thought that you were just laying it out as you saw it so yeah I I, I appreciate it man I have gotten good feedback you know I tried I, I'm a pretty like I'm a working class individual man I'm not some sort of uh, royal esotericist or anything so I just you know I just lay down the facts as they are and the where I guess you know a good starting point for anybody um, who's unfamiliar at all with this stuff um, you know, you, so if you're going to look into unexplainable phenomena in general, uh, you've got to find control methods of some kind. And that doesn't have to be – if you're looking for scientific control methods, like in this case, uh, the human experience and biology, um, it, that doesn't mean that that's where the trail ends. But that's certainly where the trail begins. And um, so it's interesting uh, because – let me put it like this. The imagination itself, people have kind of cast that to the side these days. It's a, we have a very materialist understanding of it. And, uh, you know, through most of human history, the imagination was something very different. It, they, it had a lot more weight to it and it had even a, a lot more reality to it. Um, there's a lot of, uh, scholarly suggestion, you know, it's, uh, I mean, it's conjecture at this point because who can say, you know, no one was alive during the, the evolution, the dawn of the species. But it seems very clear from um, from anthropological records and, uh, and the, the culture that we can gather from ancient histories that people really did uh, believe that the imagination was something that they had some sort of relationship with, but wasn't exactly – um, didn't ex necessarily entirely pertain to their, uh, you know, it wasn't something that was, uh, that was stuck in their brain, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, the psychologist Julian Jaynes, uh, came up with the really interesting proposition, you know, the, the bicameral mind and how 
uh, in the development of the different parts of our brain that allow us to function with one another on a cultural level, um, which is also, um, as an aside, you know, the same mechanisms that allow us to dream and perform art and ceremony and ritual and these things. Well, the, uh, the unconscious mind itself, while these adaptations were forming, there is every possibility and indication to suggest that it came across as a completely different thing, you know, outside of the mind of the individual. Um, and I mean, why wouldn't it? If we're, if we're talking about the dawn of civilization, we're not just that, but especially the dawn of civilization, but the dawn of our, our culture as we know it, there has to be some sort of point on the scale where, you know, people are not dreaming and then all of a sudden they are. Um, so there is a starting point. And when you're trying to suss these things out and look for real empiricism on the subject, you've got to see where it all starts from. And it all starts from dreams, essentially dreams and the, and the, the, the life and death cycle. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, and you consider your, um, your research into these matters, heuristic mysticism, correct? Yeah. Yeah. A heuristic being a, a term used in evolutionary psychology to denote this sort of self-education process. Um, Jacques Vallée used the term to express the same sentiment. Um, he, he often tossed around the, the word or the term meta logic. And I've heard people like, uh, you know, Jung um, touches on similar things. I've heard Jordan Peterson uh, toss phrases like meta truth around this idea that there is um, that. So the, the classic example I give for uh, a heuristic process is the fact that so many people still to this day think that porcupines shoot out their quills and they don't. But if you think that you might get the answer wrong on the test, but it's going to, I mean, it's going to keep you further away from the porcupine essentially. And that has some sort of adaptational value. Um, it might have potentially more adaptational value than the people who might want to go and, uh, take their, you know, risk their, their chance with the porcupine. Um, and mysticism, religion, um, comparative religion in general, there's, is generally uh, received in the, you know, evolutionary psychological community these days that uh, comparative religion is, in essence, heuristic. And because, I mean, that's, I mean, that's just calling it like it is at this point. I don't think there's really any dispute because there's a lot of, there's a lot that you have to sift through in comparative religion of folklore and mythology and a lot of antiquated concepts and, you know, uh, social norms that don't play out uh, for very long, but there are also these timeless truths to them. And it's, uh, you know, it's different than a scientific fact. Like science tells you how to, you know, how life is built and how life, uh, you know, how life interacts with the, you know, the material environment in general, but it doesn't tell you how to actually, um, engage with life and live your life you know that's what that's what the that's what mysticism and comparative religion does in and of itself so you know there's really no schism between the two uh or or there shouldn't be this opposition between the two let me say between fact and belief because it really is a cyclical affair and um if you don't have both then 
then your whole thought process is incomplete ultimately. I mean, you could still function just as well, but um, I don't know. The, uh, the evolutionary scale shows that uh, our modern scientific understandings are born out of our ideals and our hopes and aspirations. You know, that's why, mm-hmm. that's why the species has gotten this far to begin with. So, Do you think that uh, maybe, um, you know, religion and mysticism and occult traditions and things like that are more, there's like a, a different connection to it because it's, it, we've, we've been connected to it longer throughout our evolution, meaning science is actually relatively new um, or the new kid on the block in terms of these things. I mean, you could look at it like, you know, mythology gave birth to religion and religion gave birth to science and science might give birth to something else in the future. But what we know about science is um, uh, it's always going to change in the future too, along with these views that we have with new data coming out. So I know that your book, you know, you talk a lot about like uh, how the brain works and like neurology and things like that. Um, I just saw an article from Duke University, which I think they're one of the leading uh, researchers or research uh, teams in the country having to do with like the brain and stuff and function. And they came out with a study saying everything they knew about like what they knew from fMRIs is wrong because they realized through the study that people were using different parts of their brains for different functions, meaning there was no specific function uh, associated with specific parts of the brain. So it was kind of all over the place in terms of how people were operating. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. I um, I have heard, um, I haven't looked at that study, but... I'll send you I have a, heard... a link after we're done. Awesome. Yeah, I'd, lo- I'd love to look at it. But um, I have heard the, the at least the general notion that um, that this reductionist view, uh, you can... You can say that a certain part of the brain is more inclined to um, utilize uh, certain or facilitate certain parts of consciousness, but it is all over the place. It's not necessarily like a, like a full on blueprint per se, it would seem. Uh, Yeah. So that's, um, it's quite curious. And, um, well, I don't know uh, where you guys want to go from there. We can go. I was was just going to ask you. So like, I guess my follow up would be like, I, I have this, you know, from, psychedelic use and meditation and different things i have this feeling that we are some sort of we are i mean technically we are we're receiving all sorts of data through vibration and our senses and everything um so either our senses are telling us the whole truth and that's what materialism is and here we are and this is it you know a richard dawkins slash whoever the four horsemen or whatever watch your mouth bro um (laughs) and uh you have that that point of view but then you also have the point of view where this we know that there's things we can't see beyond our spectrum in fact there's a large majority of things that we aren't able to pick up through our senses so um you know i guess that being said how, do you look at it kind of like that? Like we are this like receiver and it's incomplete and maybe that's where the mystery comes from is we aren't able to tap into these, um, not necessarily other realms, not like spatial realms or anything like that, but these these missing, you know, ultraviolet rays or whatever they may be. Yeah, yeah. The, I mean, the jury's not out, of course, but that's where my mind definitely goes. You know, I think we're... Uh, probably you know just one little bit of a vast ecosystem um and even though so much of my research has to do with uh 
things like the the projection process of the psyche but but again you know that's not i don't think that's where the the trail of breadcrumbs ends that's just where it begins Mm -hmm. so i mean honestly and it sounds it's it it sounds more like conjecture than i uh than i i would have ever wanted to to come to at this point but it the evidence just really uh, points it you know you can't you can't seem to it you always come back to this one point that even if there is intense projection phenomena of the psyche that can we can get into this more as well but that that this phenomena can in some ways become like transphysical and actually um affect the physical environment in some way then um well oh man let's see <laughs> um God, I'm sorry, guys. I lost my train of no, thought. No, no, you're my... good. You're good. Um, when you look at your research and everything, uh, it seems like you're big into philosophy, too. I love philosophy. I think that there's some things that some of the ancient philosophers were able to arrive at that some of the more modern philosophers almost, you know, in some periods backtrack and almost go backwards in their thinking where it's almost like a mind loop. Uh, but if you look at, like, the metaphysics of the ancients, I mean... Parmenides, the idea that it's all one thing, ever-changing Heraclitus, you don't step in the same river twice in terms of, you know, everything always evolving and changing, kind of what I'm talking about, like science, like, which with each day we learn something new, which replaces something else, and it's always this evolving picture, so I think that when you look at the human story, it's some of these, the fact that some of these traditions are still around is crazy, considering how much we do evolve and how much we do change, so do you think that maybe there needs to be some sort of version of that that i mean i guess that's what science is now but even scientists hold on to you know people get even like clovis first you know like stupid things you just gotta be careful you gotta let things go and uh yeah they're proven wrong but you see in the science world that there's more to it than just fact you know what i'm saying there's a whole there's money involved and then that corrupt corrupts things so well, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, ultimately, like, I'm an existentialist in the long run. I think that the only thing that really, it, it, that a human being can really fall back on is simply what they experience. Um, so, um, you know, you can you can get a good gauge of that. But I don't know, I guess it's a pretty Buddhist sentiment uh, that I have where as soon as you, as soon as you acquiesce uh, some sort of fact you automatically dilute it a little bit because it's only it's only one way to gauge it and it might be a very accurate way to gauge it but it's just the 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 limitation of uh human perceptibility you're going to be missing things and and i'm not i'm not exactly convinced that humans will ever have a full picture oh um, yeah i've accepted yeah, that. yeah that's what i was thinking i, I don't know, <laughs> even know if we have the facilities to understand it all that's the thing it's like i don't know i don't i, I was thinking about this the other day in the car it's like Let's say there, there, everything is material, but where did that material come from in the first place? So that just blew my mind. You know what I'm saying? I mean, there really <laughs> yeah. is no answer to it. So you're always going to boil it down to something that's not going to be provable. Yeah. Well, yeah, you know, Lawrence the, Krauss said, you know, something comes from nothing. So he got you, dog. Oh, great one. <laughs> no, we, we, we don't like Lawrence Krauss on this show. I mean, he convinced me with that. <laughs> It's a good segue into. Um, I hate to leave listeners hanging. I remember the uh, the general point that I was getting at um, earlier, and it's the whole idea that um, you know, in the long run, with the experience and uh, and the the projection process, 
um, things have the, uh, the they do have the potential. It seems in many cases to become phys- physical. Might not be the right way to put it, but trans physical. You know, pseudo physical. There. You know, you talk about. Like things like stigmata and other religious experiences, but then mm-hmm. uh, you know even the the stuff that comes up in possession cases and exorcisms. But um, you can you, you can see how the, these things are uh, interrelated to the psyche. But uh, and we can get into that. Uh, just, there are many different ways to to suss that out. But even the more you look into that, in, into how symbols are. Uh, expressed in different ways and even like biological ways for that matter um you still are always left with this question uh of you know what's on the other side of the of the phenomena like even if even if you can follow the trail of breadcrumbs so far into all this this biological evolutionary psychology with something like you know let's just give an example let's say sleep paralysis um Mm -hmm. we could see that the um the human brain, when you're going to sleep, uh, there's a there's a jam in the process, essentially, rudimentarily speaking, and uh, you are projecting your body's like neurological map somewhere else, and that is uh, that's through a process of um, the mirror neurons, and there's some interesting studies that have been done into that, and so we can see certain processes and how they relate to certain experiences, but that still doesn't explain so many things related to the sleep paralysis phenomena, like all the different people that you see. There's the old hag, there's the hat man, there's a bunch of different you know, right. sleep paralysis entities you can hear about and read about online. And, and there's all sorts of strange things associated with them. You know, people classically talk about the room getting chilly and uh, it, it, doing all these different things. And, you know, in the long run, it really doesn't explain it, like I said, it just begins to explain these things. And the more you follow the science, the more you just, you really can't, you can't rule out the fact that there might be something on the other side of all this. You know, it's certainly not just, it's probably honestly, and my bet is that it's not just coming from our brain. Something piggybacks mm. um, off of, off of the imagination. You know, this gets into like memetics and uh, the virology of the mind, essentially. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. Uh, two times ago, uh, my or two times ago when I took psilocybin, so like not the last time I took psilocybin, but the time before that, I wrote it down. I specifically remember thinking, "This realm I'm in, this is pure imagination." And I wrote, I specifically wrote it down because I thought that in that moment that that's so profound um, that when I thought about it more, and I wrote some other stuff down that. I'm going to hold close to the vest, but um, (laughs) in terms of what that made me feel like was that it is this, the imagination is this separate realm. Like creativity is this thing that um, I think separates us obviously uh, from most of nature. Yeah. The stuff when you're a kid and you go on vacation and it's like a, it's just like the most magical adventure you're ever going. Obviously, it is the most magical adventure you're ever going on. But the way you look at the world through these these eyes, you know, and everything's imagination. Like you look at a piece of paper, someone draws something, and it, you're like, "Whoa!" It just became something else. Mm-hmm. So, again, it's like trying to to see the world through these eyes as an adult. It's it's hard because we get bogged down with all the worries and stuff. It's hard to access our imagination when you get so bogged down with the everyday. 
Yeah, yeah. In our imagine, yeah, it becomes bogged down and cluttered, and people don't mm-hmm. know. People don't look at the imagination as this this structure. Um, uh, you know, it's not just it's not just this incorporation of uh, sensory stimulus uh, it, coming from all different directions throughout the day. I mean, our imagination is, in essence, like uh, an evolutionary storehouse. Mm-hmm. You know, because it's 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 predicated on uh, so many biological drives and instincts. You know, the imagination goes into all these different, uh, uh, you know, essentially limitless possibilities of manifestation and interpretation, but it all comes from the same, the same kinds of human brains. And it is, um, it's predominated by the same drives and instincts. Like I said, you know, sleep, hunger, you know, procreation, like there are, there are and not only that so not just is the imagination sort of like a template that all humans can kind of relate to but I mean, we also have the 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 neurobiology incorporated into our you know into our brains at this point to per- obviously perceive other people's experiences and incorporate that into our own models and um yeah, so it's a very living, breathing thing, the imagination. And, and as I said before, that's certainly how most of humans throughout history have have perceived it. And yeah, it's really got this, uh, this I don't know, it's been sold really short these days. I mean, you know, it's not just Netflix and chill. There's a lot more to it. Right. Um, and uh, But I mean, people, you know, they just, I don't know, honestly, to not, not to be too crass, but it's like people just use the... Their, their imaginations for mental masturbation and that's about it you know enjoyment of of things you know watch a lot of art and, and whatever else but there's no one's really flexing it like the muscle it it has been used as throughout history mm-hmm. um so i mean there's a lot of different there's, uh avenues we could go down from there um sure i don't know like what are you guys feeling at this point well you i want to ask you one of our yeah, yeah yeah man well this is our <laughs> this is our shit don't worry about that um Ethan, one of our listeners, asks, "Have you heard uh, or have you read Tom Campbell's My, uh, you know, Theory of Everything, My Big Toe, or you know, have you look, ever looked into that?" I'm not. I'm sorry to say that I don't recognize that title at all. Sounds okay. interesting. So Tom Campbell used part of, uh, I think, he, I don't know if he Bob Monroe, you know, with the, um, the remote viewing stuff, and he came up with like a simulation theory. Um, theory of everything, but it, it entails like all this kind of stuff into it. I definitely think it's worth checking out. I think for me, the Tom Campbell stuff, the only thing it really lacks is like the psychedelic component of it. Cause how could you overlook the one thing that you can walk around and all you're in an alternate state of consciousness and you're able to walk around as opposed to like sleeping or meditation where you need to be kind of stationary and, and, uh, um, in one place. So I, that was the only thing w- with Tom Campbell's thing with me that it was just leaving out that whole uh, aspect of things, but he, he uses science in his stuff. So it's definitely worth checking out for sure. Um, and shout out to Martin Ferretti who just joined us. I know you, you were on his show recently too. I listened to part of that. Yeah. Yeah. What's the alchemical up? mind. Yeah. Great show. Great dude. Good stuff. All right, um, so uh, I do. I want to get to the name though, the title, the dive manual. So that came from one of the quotes, right, from uh, Goethe. Is that um, correct, or is like part of? Because I know that he talks about diving in that one quote that you use in the book. I didn't know if that's where you took, you got the idea for the name from, or. 
No, I mean, in part, but uh, the, just the whole allegory of the dive is something that uh, is was definitely impressed upon me throughout, you know, subtly. It's not overt. Like, there's no, that I know of, like, you know, Messiah figure who's known for diving or anything like that. Right. But, uh, uh, but the act of diving itself has definitely always been a metaphor expressed um, in uh, comparative religion. And it's, it's especially um, interesting because of the whole alchemical model it represents and the duality and you know the the trees of life and death which is something that we can get into but it's uh it's most easily accessible i feel like as you know just the shoreline itself the conscious and unconscious and uh you know we've been talking about the whole evolutionary storehouse of the imagination itself and how it's living and breathing in that regard i mean it that's that's the metaphor of the ocean um, all throughout symbolism. Like that is what the ocean essentially represents. And um, yeah, I mean, you got to dive or drown. Sometimes you got to learn to, you got to learn. There's things at the bottom of the ocean, you know, it's uh, it, and in the way I have like a sort of meta narrative, so to speak, set up in the book. And ultimately it's like this, you're going out, uh, you, the reader are going out with me on this dive and we're going down to uh to uh, you know, vanquish any sea monsters that come around and uh, see what kind of buried treasure we can find down there. I mean, there's more to it than that, but I, I mean, the, the the metaphor is sound, and in our unconscious mind, there is there's I mean, just by mere definition of it, I mean, it's everything that we don't readily aren't readily accessing in our like our conscious perceptibility. So if you can learn to actually go through all that this gets to what you were saying maurice about you know the clutter and uh, being bogged down by the environment i mean that's in essence what diving is uh is it's not just i mean it's twofold i guess you know it, it, considering the transmutation process there's the um um you have to in essence isolate the uh the impurities you have to know what kind of impurities to target and uh and work with and deal with and then the uh and then your ideals become much clearer you know that's kind of that's how i view for anyone who's unfamiliar with uh the the trees of life and death this is a uh, a cabalistic model um which um, obviously, uh, originally comes from like the mystery traditions, and probably it has a lot of um, inspirations in Egypt. And you know, you can find it actually in, you know, you can find it in Norse mythology. But it's most prevalent and commonly associated with um, with uh, the Kabbalah and Hebrew mysticism. But um, I personally enjoy the uh, the concepts of Kabbalah that became more less Kabbalah with the K, the Hebrew, and more Kabbalah with the Q, which is like this hermetic, alchemical, you know, um, a Christian renaissance mm -hmm. of, of alchemy. And that's where, that's where most of the tradition of alchemy as we know it today uh, tends to stem from. But the trees of life and death are this very, um, you know, they're, I don't know, it's, it, it's hard. If, if you're completely unfamiliar with them, I guess the easiest thing is it's um, – they're 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 templates of manifestation and i mean they it goes you know physical and mental it's it's like the 10 irreducible ideals of the cosmos itself and you know you could get you could uh you could go down a lot of different avenues trying to um to yeah, suss about what that means but in essence that's what it is and the uh, the tree of death 
the Klyphoth are that which the distance between us and those those ideal manifestations of existence mm. um, and things that um, well, I, I like to you know classically characterize it as existential horror at its finest. You know, the the Klyphoth in and of itself is very Lovecraftian. Mm. Yeah, let me read this from your thing. Uh, now let me dare to open wide the gate past which men's steps have ever uh, flinching trod, unpopular, ambiguous, and dangerous. It is a voyage of discovery to the other pole of the world. Come with me if you want to dive. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's um, that's a compound. That's a threefold reference. It starts with a, a Gautier quote, and then uh, goes into Jung, who is quoting Gautier in that mm-hmm. quote. And then uh, "Come with me if you want to dive" is definitely me just changing the L in the Terminator quote. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> there it is. That's, that's awesome. Um, when you look at, well, actually, I wanted to ask you about this. So, why don't you describe a little bit about the um, the thesis, antithesis, and synthesis—the uh, the trifecta, if you will. Yeah, I mean Hegelian dialectic, um, and uh, the way I see it is, it it's just a it's a really eloquent map to describe, you know, how a person, in, I don't know, like a a good aim, a psychological existential aim for a person, because there is the. Uh, I mean, three is the magic number. The, there's the reason that the triangle is so closely associated with all sorts of different enlightenment symbolisms. And, you know, the human experience is, is naturally dualistic. You can't get away from it. And, um, I mean, you also can't get away from the fact that everyone needs something, in essence, to live for. Uh, and the, the, the really curious thing about the human experience is um, you – in many ways, get to choose what you live for, especially, uh, certainly more so than most things. You know, most things in the environment are, you know, given animals and whatever else are just high, just entirely essentially dictated by their drives and instincts. And even if we are mostly dictated by those same drives and instincts, we're n- not entirely. I mean, unless you're Sam Harris and <laughs> I don't think free will exists or anything. But, you know, there's a whole thing we get into about that. Like, I do really appreciate Sam Harris and the, the whole, like, quote unquote, new atheist movement but i think that it's obviously too limiting and i think it jumps through you know it jumps through so many hoops that it just kind of negates itself like sam harris says you know free will doesn't exist but he still acts he admits that he still acts and lives his life as though free will exists because that's how human beings should operate because you become uh essentially like a disjointed neurotic sociopath if you don't if you're just walking around thinking that everyone's going to be a including yourself is just an automaton Hmm. Uh, so yeah i think uh for me i always kind of look at it balance it off of like the idea of like laplace's billiard shot you know this idea that if we had all the tools if we had all the data so maybe technically let's say we are in a simulation 
that person would be God. God created us with an algorithm or, you know, data information, something along those lines. So this idea of some sort of creator, I don't think is that unfathomable based on the fact of what we know, what we're able to manipulate with our very little, um, knowledge and information that we've gained so far. Yeah. Well, there, I, I'm super interested by simulation theory and, you know, that it, think pondering simulation theory always brings me back to that, that age old symbolic concept of, of, um, existence itself, just all being part of God's dream, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, what is a dream other than a, a simulation, really? I, you know, all of this is, uh, I mean, as you stated before, like our, our sensory input is so limited. Um, it's, it's foolish to say that, um, that existence is ruled by, by just the senses. So mm-hmm. there's so much more going on. And, um, I mean, you know, the more you look into like the unexplainable phenomena, um, and you see that it has this sort of, it, it, it has this quality. It's clearly manifesting uh, through projection processes of the psyche that go f- much further than most people would care to recognize. Um, but these uh, these projections of the psyche, um, yeah, they become so they become so concrete in many ways. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, like, are you guys familiar with uh, with the whole? Um, the miracles at Fatima. It's very fascinating. Um, yeah, and uh, I don't know, but go ahead. yeah, you can. Well, real quickly, it. you know, for any listeners, um, you know, it's this whole. It happened in like the early, very early 20th century Portugal, and um, it was these visitations of the uh, the Virgin Mary to these children, and it, it first was just the children, and then it became a cluster of people who heard about it when she when the Virgin Mary told the children to meet back up and witness her again. And then it became thousands and then it became tens of thousands. And eventually it became, um, hundreds of thousands, um, and all witnessing these things. And people like Jacques Vallée have gone more into, um, analyzing, you know, how there's a lot of like UFO potential implications involved there. And, uh, this, this, it, it becomes a whole hodgepodge. And, uh, I think Fatima is interesting because you can look at it in a few different ways and feel like you understand it fairly well. And I think that that is just, that shows how, uh, how much of a dive, uh, di- you know, this, this projection process and its potential manifestations can be is we're dealing with a kaleidoscope of, of uh experience here and i mm-hmm. think that um there are a whole host in history itself the record shows that there are a whole host of different um very persistent projection processes and it's it's curious to try and get to the heart of those things like you know we talked about the old hag with uh, uh sleep paralysis and you know there's there's lots of um epilepsy throughout history has really really inspired uh, and given fodder to possession as we know it today. Sure. And yeah, I mean, it, it, UFOs, uh, the jury's not entirely out on that one, but again, you know, <laughs> this gets into a whole thing where how much of the UFO is physical and how much of it is, I don't know, metaphysical essentially. Um, you know, because yeah, they, I mean, talking to people that are in the know of these things. I mean, I read up on all the new stuff. I know a lot about 
the UFO, and I've read all the books, John Keel, Jacques Vallée, I know what's going on with TTSA and Stephen Greer and like everything that's going on. So I'm pretty well versed in it. And from what I understand is there's both. There is both physical and metaphysical things happening at the same time, according to, like I said, people in the know. So I don't know. Take that for what you will. But I mean, I guess that's saying that there is flesh and blood aliens out there but then there's also metaphysical beings that may come in and out of now for me what i believe is i believe more specifically the consciousness metaphysical connection uh me personally but i've never experienced anything physical so i can't really speak to that yeah but this is i'm certainly not um like a end-all be-all expert by any stretch but you know just that the idea of both Maybe I just need to warm up to the idea and, and, and see more of the data, but it just Occam's razor doesn't seem to slice it very well. Mm-hmm. Um, and that might just be me. That's that's kind of what my gut says. And I, you know, I, let me put it like this: I do think that there are flesh and blood extraterrestrials. I, I, I definitely think that, but I'm really still very skeptical about the fact that any of them are visiting us. And <clears throat> I, like I said, I, I could be totally wrong, but. Um, I'm always skeptical of government insiders uh, until I look into it further. And um, I don't know, like, what do you guys think about uh, all of the all of the current UFO hype? It seems peculiar. It, the timing seems peculiar, and um, I don't know. In so many cases, you could see that, yeah, but like the Tic Tacs from 2004. So that's not like, oh, there's weird stuff going on with the world the last couple of years. These things have been happening since the early 2000s and obviously long before that, according to ancient accounts and weird descriptions of things and things like that. So I don't, I don't rule anything out. I don't die on any one Hill. Um, for me, like I said, I've experienced weird entities on psychedelics. So I feel like that metaphysical connection, at least I've experienced some, I've had an anecdotal or subjective experience with that, but I've never seen like a physical UFO in the sky. Well, you know, I've been thinking about this more because I've seen, I saw several different UFOs in Alaska while I was living there. Um, and, you know, for the for the longest time, I just, and I mean, I guess technically speaking, I still, Occam's Razor would probably tell me that it's government because there's a huge Air Force base there. But I, you know, I saw some of these things were further away. I saw one that was just flying over like the rooftops of like, 3 a.m. or something and what uh shape was it was it a triangular yeah you know um it it i, I looked in my journal my handwritten journal from those years ago and because i remembered it being triangular and it is except it didn't have the point it was kind of like it was just cut off on the third tip. yeah so they just did an episode i don't know there's a show called unidentified on history channel uh that like the people associated with to the stars academy and there's a uh, um that i think it's episode three or four where it talks about black triangular shapes how they hover low and it's almost like they're mapping like the ground or something or like yeah almost like they're taking pictures and, and mapping out what's you know the earth or whatever and that's how it came across and but I, you know and uh on that same token i really even though it looked very very physical and very real um and it just I don't know. Maybe I'm just too skeptical, but I didn't want. I, it just didn't make any sense what like a like a full blown ET would be doing, just mapping out some low key suburb, 
in Alaska, but it definitely did not seem governmental. I, I don't understand what the purpose of that would be. I mean, even if it is 3 a.m., you're flying low key over a mm-hmm. residential neighborhood like that. I don't I don't see how you could uh, you could want to do that without, you know, and still hope to keep any sort of low profile, really. But, um, um, you know, this in this is just food for thought. But uh, I was thinking about this the other day and. I wonder if this is some sort of dividing line, a potential dividing line between uh, these physical and metaphysical uh, UFO encounters. And, you know, because Jung talks about how the the UFO, um, in the sense that it's this projection of the shadow, um, at least in one part. And and like I said, this doesn't mean that that's where the trail ends, but this is at least where the trail begins. It's definitely has some sort of relationship to our unconscious mind. Um, and how it seems to be conveying, um, you know, without mincing words too much, um, it's it's uh, the the totality of our experience encapsulated into one. You know, this gets um, deep into archetypes and how, um, and even kind of into the, the the trees of life and death a little bit, and what um, and what a, a uniform uh, unit. Like I mean, especially the circle, you know, like Jung essentially relates, um, at least archetypally, UFOs to uh, mandalas. And that's a really curious idea. Um, you know, it's not exclusively, it's not pound for pound, tit for tat, but there's there's some sort of correlation going on there. Um, and it seems, and this, this is what made me start rethinking my experience, uh, the one I told you about a little more, is... It came as a, it started as just a ball of light, you know, and then you focus and you hear about this so often in UFO sightings, starts as a ball of light and you focus on it and like, what is that? What's going on there? And you focus on it a little more and it slowly it starts to kind of get closer and materialize and, you know, I'll be damned if I, 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 that certainly feels like some sort of hypnotic quality there. Mm. You know, it's almost like someone is swinging a watch in front of your eyes. You're, you're watching something and you're focusing all your attention on it. And there's a state of suspended disbelief. And, um, I think that, you know, because here's the thing is altered states of consciousness definitely, uh, dictate how strong and, um, and poignant a projection process is going to be. So, I mean, and, and that's, that's, uh, indicative with psychedelics or dreaming um or experiences like these you know or 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 hypnosis um so i think that there is um i think honestly uh and this is kind of i feel like a a very valet keelian mentality that um that these things um have they uh they well you see it's hard to uh it's hard to know what comes first, the chicken or the egg with these kind of things, right? Like mm-hmm. is, uh, is, so if we're talking about like folklore, uh, like UFOs, uh, you know, just lore that travels to these unexplainable things, like from UFOs to cryptozoology to paranormal, um, do human beings tell stories to make sense of the world or do, uh, or do stories or, our stories almost embodied by human beings, you know, and this, uh, this kind of gets to the whole 
um, viral nature of the idea um, and the imagination itself. Like, what does a virus like to do? It likes to find a place to incubate and then multiply. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that, you know, and Valet took this to the extent of... Well, that's what the materials say about God, that it's a mind virus. It was just an idea that ran wild and infected all of our minds. Sure. I mean, why wouldn't it's it really be? interesting, yeah. Yeah, but uh, but that's that's one way to put it. And viruses uh, definitely aren't necessarily bad. Uh, I mean, even the mimetic evolutionary psychologist will admit that we have had all sorts of um, pro-adaptive qualities that have come from ceremony and, and, and uh, ritual and tradition. Well, they're looking at the genetics, too. They just came out with a study from... Uh... Denisovans and uh, there's something there's a gene having to do with autism that somehow uh, I forget the exact thing I didn't read the whole thing yet but we've had guests on to uh, Dr. Gregory Little who's a psychologist and ancient you know civilization researcher uh, and his writing partner um, Andrew Collins and they wrote a book called Denisovan Origins where they kind of talk about that kind of a stuff that kind of a thing where these um, there might have been some sort of autistic gene in the Denisovans that somehow got translated. Not that that's a, a virus or anything, but just to show that something negative can, you know, evolve into something more positive, or at least where we are now. Absolutely, yeah. There are many cases uh, or many examples, and um, yeah, like I said, you know, even even the evolutionary psychologist will admit that. I don't know. I, I don't know how willing Dawkins is to admit that, but his constituents will certainly admit it. I mean, Sam Harris himself will 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 um, will admit to that degree that you know that there there's plenty of use to be had in these um, these these viral um, ideas, and uh, um, you know that uh, that that sheds a lot of light on the uh, the concept of uh, of possession and exorcisms as well. Oh, it's very curious. Yeah, know. I always thought that that the good explanation for that uh, is the whole epilepsy thing. Um, so, I mean, I don't know if that's true or not, but it it makes sense. Somebody having like epileptic seizures and not being able to be controlled, and you know, if you've ever been around somebody that's having an epileptic seizure, that that's it's, you know, you could see where maybe that kind of comes from. Yeah, most certainly. But again, I'm not yes. opposed to the idea that there's something else going on too. I just, I would have to see something a little bit more concrete than the movie The Exorcist or something like yeah. that, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh, no doubt. Um, and more recent Although side a bunch effects. of weird shit happened around that movie. Like people died. The fucking the movie theater that they played it in was struck by lightning like the day of the release. All kinds of yeah, stuff. It's a real so, King Tut's discovery type scenario, huh? But but is yeah. it is it is it humans creating that because of the subject matter? So like you're going to work every day, you know you're thinking about this stuff every day, and we've seen I don't know I'm a big component believing that uh, the the outside world's a reflection of within. So depending if you're putting yourself in that position every day in day out, do they conjure up something? Yeah, it really makes you wonder, um, and I really don't think that. Um, I really don't think that that's a very far-fetched possibility. That you know, in again, this is—I mean—pretty much the the thread of the whole conversation is uh, like, even if beliefs are not quite as linear as we believe them to be, uh, they still very well, uh, they more than likely, 
definitely have literal implications and it could it could go much further than than anybody really realizes and i do think that these things can um can project in in different ways i think that probably um and i don't mean to sound like i think that all unexplainable phenomena is just like is just a person's brain going on the fritz like it's not just some sort of schizophrenic episode type thing but um um I don't know. It's 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 definitely something like that. I mean, schizophrenia in and of itself is a very interesting thing, and we don't know about we we don't know as much about schizophrenia as we do about other things uh, because it's got such a multiplicity of uh, symptoms, and I mean they're essentially all in the mind. So it's it's kind of hard. You could speculate, but it's kind of hard to to find that. Uh, anthropologically speaking but i mean records of epilepsy for example are much easier to come across because a full-on seizure is something that's much more noticeable obviously yeah and i think here's the thing for so i have ocd i talk about all the time on our show and real ocd there's people who are like oh i like to clean that's not what real ocd is uh right <laughs> but people that have it that are afflicted with this it, it's a real mental health issue for sure um, and you'll never get rid of it. There's no, you know, cure for OCD per se, but you can with through CBT therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, you know, certain medicines, whatever works for you. For me, uh, you know, the occasional macrodose of psilocybin was super helpful to reset the mind and allow yourself to kind of reflect and go through this, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy and actually put it to work. Um, but I will say, I think I have a unique outlook on, this whole like mind virus thing per se, because that's kind of what OCD is. It, it, it's this like thought, but you, you get into this like thought pattern and then it becomes a loop and then it's almost nearly impossible to break free from the loop. And then the loop embeds itself. It creates new neural pathways and stuff like that. So right. um, I think that when you look at that in, in correlation to what we're talking about, I think that maybe that there's a reason why, um, people believe in like let's say uh the law of attraction or certain religions or whatever because if it works for you and you do it you know whether it's practicing meditation or you know praying or whatever the case may be if you see positive effects from it and it becomes a kind of like a compulsive thing you know you correlate those things together for ocd it's more of like correlating something negative and that's where the problem comes in for most people um because i think what we're all we're all addicts, right? I mean, in certain. Oh yeah. We're all addicted. We're all addicted to something. I don't, you know, I don't know what it is for TV or sugar or coffee or, you know, mm -hmm. drugs, whatever the case may be. We're all addicted to something, but I think that work. Yeah. When, when these things pop up, it's, you become addicted to the wrong thing. And I think thinking things is a bad addiction too, because it becomes very, very difficult to break free from. But I wanted to point this out. You, 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 said this in, I think towards the beginning of your book you said have you ever thought about what you really believe in and I thought that that's actually a good point because most people don't I mean we talk about it all the time on the show but most people don't even acknowledge what they think could be real or is real because they're so consumed with you know the minutia of the day so uh, let me ask you this what do you really believe in currently um 
uh, what, what like in terms of uh, yeah, like the, the whole the big picture. Like, is there a creator? Is there no creator? Is the universe, you know, uh, conscious? You know, what do you is a panpsychism? Like, what are your where do you stand with you know your current research and knowledge on these topics? Hmm, great question. Um, chew on that. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, honestly, where my brain goes to at this point is it seems that. I mean, I, as far as I could see it, like this is God's dream, you know, God being not not exactly the uh, the Abrahamic God, but God being source, I guess, if you want to put it like that. And I don't think that this is um, I'm inclined to believe in reincarnation, um, I think, across the multiverse. I think that, you know, when we die, who's to say where we go next? Um, I think that the the possibilities are pretty limitless. But also, I mean, if there's nothing, then, then you know that's fine too. But I, I really don't think that that's, and I don't think that that is what the evidence suggests so far. Certainly, there's no uh, there's no concrete answer to that. But I mean, we know that um, energy cannot be created or destroyed, and we know that um, energy does not always, it, not in every case, does it disperse and just become like absorbed by its ambient environment you know uh certain um frequencies and wave patterns can definitely maintain um i mean that's something that's understood in physics uh, today so it's definitely possible um and i think even likely and you know i think it's all you know i i think it's just a continuous learning process um i i think if we're here to learn to begin with i don't see any reason that we won't be continuing and you know, I it, like I said, I'm an existentialist, so everything boils down to um, the individual experience for me, and not just my own, but every single person's individual experience. And um, I think, yeah, I mean, you know, in the long run, I guess, you know, what, what can I say, really? I have a lot of inspiration. You know, I, I was born and raised Christian, and I've since studied a lot of different stuff and i find that i'm most drawn towards uh you know eastern sentiment like buddhism and taoism and i have obviously a lot of hermetic influence as well so uh, you know i think that you, you just it's really important to be an altruistic person you know and that's all i can say you know as an ultimate takeaway because i don't even really fully know what i believe in i mean who does it's all a continuous process changes yeah 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 Yeah, i saw that during a trip that's what michael's michael's been saying that for i mean we me and him have been both flip-flopping both our views since the day we started this thing (laughs) yeah so i say you guys are healthy researchers honestly (laughs) well i personally during a trip had this experience where i thought what if the multiverse is just shells and when you die you go to the next shell and you just live every single possibility because you know time isn't linear we only perceive it that way right so um does that mean you say you were on mushrooms when you had that thought (laughs) yeah yeah, yeah. well i only i don't mean to no 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 you're no no yeah 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 but that that's absolutely what it was well, feel free to keep going, but I have to say that I have pretty much had that thought verbatim on a cup of mushroom tea as well. <laughs> it, it, yeah. it was mushroom tea. Maybe it's something oh, about the good. tea. Jesus. I it's swear to God, God, it was like 3.5 mushroom tea. So. <laughs> nice. Um, Perfect. Curious. But 100%, that's what I thought. And it's like to 
to go further than what this life was in a way, you know, or to do some variation of it. So it was just a weird thing that I remember writing down because I, I record a lot of what I think about during these experiences. Which is good. And I think that that is a very, very legitimate possibility that reincarnation might just be a parallel timelines. Like what if you just, what if you just die and then, and then you, you know, maybe you start at the point where you died and then didn't die in another timeline. Maybe you start at the beginning and you just live out every single variation. I mean, yeah, you know, it all gets so drastically different. And and if you're really talking about past lives and all that, like I'm sure a lot of details get lost in translation anyway. But that gets into like false memory syndrome and all sorts of stuff. You start talking about past life yeah, memories no. and and uh, and I I don't think that. There's a lot of Edgar Casey and Rudolf Steiner stuff on that. Yeah, we're big fans. Well, at least yeah, I am. Yeah. I won't speak for Michael. Dude, don't speak for me. You don't know what I like right now. We've been getting no, I'm joking. In trouble. I, I like no, I like Steiner and uh, I like Casey. I think well, Casey's stuff's positive. You know, it's just it's not. I don't think there's anything harmful. Whether somebody was a true clairvoyant or not, I don't think matters if they had a positive effect in the community. And from what I've read, it seemed like. Casey had a positive effect on the community so I don't think that there's anything wrong with that at all um, but I will say though so that, that thought though that I had where we all um, you know it's there's these shells and we pop into these shells once we pop into that shell this thing's boom dust goes into the air so that we at the very end there's only one and that's the thing and then not that you're necessarily like God but the very last one is you you become the one that was the thought yeah, yeah, the the ultimate union at the end of it. Yeah, the real the neo type shit. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no doubt. Um, um, but yeah, so I, that's interesting that you had that 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 because I I like hearing when people have similar ideas and stuff like that because it's not anything that ever like I had thought about going into it. So when you have that kind of experience and other people have similar experiences, I mean, don't get me wrong, I know about the multiverse and research all that and look at what Sean Carroll's doing with all that you know all that stuff but at the same time you know I gotta add my own little spin in it hell yeah absolutely um yeah so um what's your what is your your main uh takeaway from writing this book like what's the one thing I, I know i asked you what you believe in now but what's your take like what is something that you learned from writing this book that has had a positive effect on your life mm. i mean everything about the book uh the, writing the book in and of itself definitely um without getting too sentimental here it, it, it did kind of give me a new lease on life in some sense getting some things out and um but I know in, in terms of like research, um, I don't know. The biggest takeaway for me is, well, getting into this stuff initially, being skeptical and open-minded, and and trying to keep the balance of both. Being willing to look into anything, but not being sold on on anything. Um, I I kind of assumed. I didn't. I definitely didn't assume. But I I kind of suspected that. Uh, especially taking like an evolutionary psychology sort of approach that this stuff would kind of become demystified for me, whether or not that is accurate or not. I, I kind of thought that might happen. But um, again, as I've said here, uh, it really just it opened me up to how little 
of an understanding um, any of us really have. Uh, and, and again, that's why I'm an existentialist. So I think that it's really important to um, foster the imagination, every single human being. It's an, it's an adaptation mechanism. We would not be where we are today without it. Um, and, you know, pay attention to your dreams, you know, pay attention to what, you know, think about what you believe in. Um, and that's, yeah, that's gotta be the biggest takeaway because you could get into, you could get into 14 phenomena. You could start researching UFOs or doing praying to Hermes or whatever. But as long as you're doing something and you're engaging, um, you know, even if you're an atheist, if you're engaging with those imaginative ideals, that's, again that's what the human experience is all about and it's going to be incomplete i mean honestly you're going to be fooling yourself anyway if you think that you're not doing that because i mean it's 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 biology in one sense no i mean that's Mm -hmm. pretty much been my path as maurice uh if you listen to one of our first shows it's like we i believe in all sorts of stuff that i 100 percent don't believe in now or have debunked through (laughs) my own research and when i say debunked when i when i say that it's not. It's something so obvious that I just didn't look into it before. That anybody with a brain can figure out some of these things. You know, like here's an example: the Temple of Seti in uh, Egypt. It looks like there's a James Bond car and a UFO and everything. <laughs> but what it is is they're two different generations or two different dynasties. One you know set of glyphs printed over another glyph. So the pareidolia makes you think that that's. But you're looking at it from a modern, um, a modern you know, view, which they didn't have that kind of stuff back then. And I'm sure they had advanced technology for their time, but it didn't involve, you know, James Bond cars and UFOs <laughs> and stuff. Right. Right. But so that that's just an example. So like looking into that stuff. So if you look at to where I was then to where we are now with what I believe, and I've done a lot more research, a lot more reading, and I've come to the conclusion that there is this real fringe or this real, um, you know, I don't even know. There's, I believe that there's this metaphysical sliver that exists that we can tap into, but it's very narrow and it encompasses like all these topics. But within all those topics, it's not as widespread as you might think, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So like there's a, a, another example would be like Bigfoot. Like, you know, I know Joe Rogan talks about this a lot on his podcast, but Gigantopithecus there might be some epigenetic consciousness memory that we have of living alongside this thing, but that right. doesn't necessarily, you know, you're in the woods and you have some like, you know, fight or, or flight type reaction. You, it might tap into some sort of epigenetic thing and boom, you, you're into a portal of time there where you're seeing something that you, you're not used to or something like that. So, um, but again, that, that could be a real thing in terms of that's a real experience. Absolutely. Man, you hit the nail on the head. Absolutely. Um, I mean, because I think not to dissuade Bigfoot researchers. um, Oh, yeah. I love Bigfoot research. I love, you know, but it's not, it's, I'm not, it's not my, it's probably the least thing out of all the things we talk about, but I do appreciate people that, that are passionate about it because I'm passionate about other things, you know, so. Yeah, yeah. Um, But it, you know, so. Yeah, Bigfoot researchers, especially the dudes who go out hunting for it, you know, they I definitely see what they're what they're getting at. But I think it might be time to stop looking for a body. Uh, that's one conclusion I've come to. I mean, just literally just encapsulating a little, you know, a period on the sentence of what you just said, because I really think that that is probably um, a great example of 
I mean, honestly, that's that seems to be how I view so much Fortean phenomena, if not all of it to this day. I mean, it, because that's a really that's at least a really tenable theoretical possibility. It's not just speculation. It's a theoretical possibility at this point. And if if it, it, because that's also that's what people like Valet and Keel are saying with UFOs. And, mm-hmm. and uh, I mean, Keel said that about the Mothman and things. And I think. Um, yeah, um, who, who, you know, who's to say that there's not all um, they they aren't all stemming from from that sort of like the projection process. Right. Um, you know, it seems like. Yeah, it's 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 hard to say how far it really goes. But again, I think that a lot of this has to do with um, altered states of consciousness and has a lot more to do with the role that um, uh, we were what's a good way to put it these things when i say these things are piggybacking off of thing of off of our neurobiology uh they really seem to specifically be picking off piggybacking off of the neurobiology that facilitates dream phenomena mm-hmm. uh, I, I i definitely think that there is a connection and that is a connection that um again is not fact but it's very theoretically tenable as uh, espoused by the minds of people like Valet and Carl Jung, and even heard uh, one of my favorite sources because he's so infinite. He's got so much out there. Is um, Manly P. Hall, mm. you know, the third degree Freemason. Yeah. Um, teachings for all ages. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, his his written work is phenomenal, but the guy has just a mind-boggling amount of recorded lectures you can find online. Yeah, he's kind of like Steiner. There is a ton of his lectures on there. Right. So yeah. Steiner, definitely another good one. Definitely another good one. Um, but uh, yeah, I've heard Hall himself, um, you know, all these guys like they were in contact due degrees of separation. Like Valet was into Jung and Keel and uh, Keel was into Jung and Manly P. Hall and Jung were talking and they were all the, the more I've always gravitated. I've, I've read a lot of different stuff, as you can see from the book's bibliography. But but those are some of my four mm-hmm. favorite sources. And and it's no it's no um, coincidence that they're all they're coming at they're, they're coming at uh, entirely different angles, but they're all uh, pointing in the same direction. And it's the fact that the imagination and these altered states of consciousness definitely play roles in these unexplainable phenomena. Uh, like again, like with Fatima, um, mm-hmm. I think that there's a, a, there's every inclination to suggest that probably the amount of people there um, had to do, and and the belief that people had in those experiences had to do with uh, a sort of snowball effect, uh, and. You know, uh, I'm trying to remember the term you, uh, Jung uses in his book about flying saucers, but it's... Um, yeah, I've never uh, read that. Uh, Dr. Gregory Little mentioned it when he was on our show. Um, I know our buddy Lee, who's went to school to study yeah. Jung, talked about it a little bit, too. Yeah, well, I can't remember exactly how he put it, but he basically... Oh, this is what it was. He said that there's a difference between mass visions and mass hallucinations, because hallucinations usually denote some sort of hysteria involved. Mm. Um, but a vision was like Fatima, for example, and, and there are other examples as well. Uh, there was definitely like an intensity, a, a potential you know chaos to the situation, but definitely not hysteria in the sense of like 
uh, mass panic or anything like that. So uh, it does seem, you know, and we definitely know that, you know, the the extents of mass hysteria um, and how people can affect each other. I mean, it's not even very metaphysical, but you can look at the Stanford prison experiment if you want to understand how um, uh, people affect each other in enclosed situations like that. And I think... What's you know, it with I Stanford think- with, between that and the... Uh, SRI with the uh, the remote viewing, and I mean they they seem to be on top of like the metaphysical stuff over there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very curious stuff, no doubt, no doubt. Um, but I also think that I really think at this point that uh, the whole Mothman prophecies in Point Pleasant, West Virginia, is uh, what they experienced during that like little less than a year um, is could be chalked up to the same kind of thing. This whole this mass um the group influenced visionary scenario and and again this this starts to really bleed the line of of uh what's what's real and what's not but yeah was there a bunch of different theories too that you know people have tried to figure out what the mothman was was it a harpy you know eagle was it that barred owl was it mk ultra related which you know actually that that actually doesn't seem like it's that implausible really not that far-fetched i've thought about that before and there's def i think that you know my best stab in the dark you know so let's say that there were owl sightings involved in all that i mean if you're dealing with so many people on edge in a town there's definitely going to be some throwaway sightings Mm -hmm. but um you know i really i just i don't think it's very scientifically sound to throw out all of the sightings i mean especially given the number and the consistency of it um but yeah, I was just rereading that. I paused. I got to go back to it. Oh, it's great! I love yeah, that. We're big, but we love the movie. Maurice least. has got to. Maurice saw the movie, but he's got to read the book. He would love the book. Oh yeah, he would love the book. Great movie too, though. But but I definitely think that there's a definite possibility that along the way, when maybe pe- people start seeing weird things, and then maybe other people start getting freaked out, maybe seeing some owls and. And then the newspapers start printing stuff. Maybe John Keel was poking his head around and the government was like, okay, we got a lot of LSD and we have a prime scenario. So, I mean, we clearly can't put that past them. They did things like that and much worse. Well, they don't really talk about like in the movie, like the UFO connection to the whole thing either. It's more just kind of like paranormal styles, the way that they portrayed it. Right, right. Yeah, the UFO and, and even the men in black are uh, very... Yeah. Yeah, that yeah. part where he's he's the 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 guy that's like almost like a droid kind of a guy sitting there in the house, and there's a lot of like weird little things off with him and stuff. Yeah, there's some interesting stuff in there. Right. Yeah. And so you know, here's some good examples. Like, um, and Valet pointed to this too, where he said that so many of these unexplainable scenarios are completely absurd. Uh, like they really are, but that doesn't mean that they didn't happen. You know, and it kind of gets into his ideas of meta logic and how this might be the 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 way we view, um, like you know, calling that uh, these encounters with these really strange, inhuman men in black type things, people that didn't know how to work pencil or uh, yeah, like pens and pencils and stapler forks, like yeah, this is uh, this is they're not human and um it seems to be a fundamental piece of the phenomena 
that it does come across absurd because you know like skeptics will say and this is a valid point and it'd be like okay so you think that that's not human you think it's aliens and you think aliens didn't do enough research to figure out how to hold a fork like no not no honestly um <laughs> it, it has nothing to do with research it has to do with the fact that and and i really think that the more you look into the absurdity quality and all this stuff it starts to lend a lot more credence to the idea that these things are related to the symbolic imagination and and dream mechanisms because that's exactly how dreams operate it, dreams are in and of themselves very metalogical and they come across very absurd but if you talk to especially someone like a Jungian psychoanalyst they'll give you all sorts of concrete food for thought um, because uh, dream analyses are you know approximations but they're very good approximations you can get to the heart of some very very uh tangible useful yeah i have a young that i was reading or Jung. i don't know i say young but I don't either know way even. yeah there's so many it's ways to pronounce all these people's names but the, the thing is, is i uh what is what's the book that i was reading here let me pull it up because there's a part where he's talking about uh he's talking about dream analysis and he's talking about how there was this guy, he was like, oh, a modern man in search of a soul. Uh, there's a part where he's analyzing this guy who's having these dreams who's a mountain climber, and he's having this dream that he's dying up on the mountain. Um, and, and Jung's like, hey, you know, just, you know, because he's alone in the dream. He's like, just don't go climbing alone. So, like, the next few times he brings somebody, he has a couple close calls, and ends up being okay, but then he goes up like the third time alone and ends up dying up on the mountain. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Jung, ha from my studies of him, um, he's made, he's given me a, a, an invaluable amount of insight. And one of the things was the fact that dreams, um, especially if they're recurring, but they don't even necessarily have to be, uh, it doesn't have to be a recurring dream for dreams overall to have a sequence to them because mm. um, i mean the, the sequence essentially being your experience as the human being but especially you know if you want to talk about recurring dreams um because you know recur a recurring dream is something um like a mimetic virus kind of thing that that i dealt with in the book and trying to um and that propelled me in my experiences and trying to unravel uh you know what why viruses of the mind might be incubating in these sorts of things but um um dreams ah oh, man i'm sorry guys this is pretty late i can't no no you're fine uh we can wrap it up here too if, if it's no uh, no no worries no okay. worries um I'm, I'm really enjoying this uh so but the point that i was gonna ask actually was um do you think so like the we know, I mean, I watched, there's this guy, Matthew Walker, he's like a dream sleep expert, and um, there's, he talks a lot about how, like, if you don't get your normal REM in, that it's, at some point it's going to happen, whether you want it. So, like, could it be this idea of, like, sleep paralysis that maybe, and I've had this too, I've had sleep paralysis twice, and not involving, like, entities or anything. One time was... I was super tired. I was actually coming back from our annual camping trip that we go on and I hadn't slept and I was doing psychedelics and stuff for like a few days. <laughs> and uh, when I got back to where I was staying before I went back home, I had this like 
I was like paralyzed in bed and it was, I saw like a planet with like a planet behind it. But all I could see is that I couldn't move. It was like pure light too, aside from that. And then the only other time that that's happened was I was sitting on my couch and I didn't get any sleep the night before. I had this like paralyzing sucking back feeling like this white light, you know, flush over me. Um, and those two, uh, we're pretty weird and it's you can't move when it's happening like you think that oh i'll be the one that moves or i'll be the guy that breaks out of it no when it's happening dude you can't get out of it hmm. yeah it's so true um i think i also think that there is a lot of possibility uh probability that um a lot of ufo encounters or uh, abduction encounters to be precise might bleed the lines of sleep paralysis phenomena i've said that on here yeah, before we've too. Said that, yeah. but do you think though that that's that negates something metaphysically still happening or do you think that's the mechanism behind connecting to that thing no i yeah i think that's the mechanism um because like i said you know the the imagination is kind of um a kaleidoscope and it just kind of depends on how the individual person's consciousness is uh shaken up through their experiences in their life but uh so i i genuinely think that what might come across as uh you know the the succubus vampire or an old hag might come across as a as a extraterrestrial to another person i think there's that again that's a very very uh tenable theory at this point not just speculation so have you ever looked into dr michael masters uh identified flying object Mm -mm. uh it's a theory uh that you know and it's i know that there's other people that have discussed this before but it's that the idea and he wrote it out he's a um i want to say an anthro he's a professor of bi biological anthropology or something along those lines anyways he wrote this book about how they're time travelers that this the gray is an archetype of what we are to become. So maybe through oh, time yeah, travel some, or some heady shit. We're talking yeah. Traveling here. through space. We know you lose bone density. So maybe it's long, long term bone, you know, bone loss mixed with different, you know, evolution happening. And that, you know, the, the UFOs is like the time machine and the gray archetype is like the actual time traveler. Yeah. The ultra terrestrial. Yeah. Yeah, I've definitely heard that idea, and yeah, definitely, definitely possible as far as I'm concerned. Um, you know, Valet even went so far as to to think that these things were definitely um, sentient. They definitely had their own conscious experience to them, and he thought that they had a type of technology that um, essentially is able to. Uh, do this piggybacking process that we've been talking about this whole time. He thought that the UFOs were geared around potentially specifically that. And uh, that's what uh, that just popped into my head thinking about UFOs as time travel devices. So, mm. yeah, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of possibilities. But the ultimate takeaway, I think, with these things is, again, however you want to slice the pie, um, you can't get all the answers from material science. That's for sure. Uh, and and the really curious thing is it's not like there's just a drop-off in science. And you're like, okay, well, um, uh, I guess that's that, you know, so to speak. Maybe we'll figure it out when we get more scientific data. But it, it it's continuing. You know, you could see, um, if anything, science just over time lends credence to all these um, all these bizarre, unexplainable facets of the human experience. Mm -hmm. And, and science just shows us that we may not have, um, a really 
well, like I said before, like with heuristics, we may not get, uh, be getting these answers right on the on the test so far. But the fact that we've put weight into these things, um, the whole culture of unexplainable phenomena as we know it, the fact that we put weight into them uh, just evolutionarily suggests that there's merit to them. Otherwise, they they wouldn't be here to begin with. Right. Even religion is obviously has some sort of religious or some uh, evolutionary uh, mechanism behind it. So this, I, that's one takeaway that I've taken away from this whole thing is that all these fringe and metaphysical, all these topics have one thing, and I think that's what drives uh, evolution in a certain regard. Because think about where we are technologically; it's to figure things out. So if there's not this like carrot dangling in front of us, you know, what's the point? If we found out tomorrow that you know. It, everything is predetermined and there is no free will and we have the algorithm for it kind of like on that show i don't know if you've seen devs that tv show on fx where they they kind of they, they they crack the code if, per se uh, it's an interesting show you should definitely check it out. it's a great show actually okay. um but you know if they found that out tomorrow what would the psyche be like for human beings we would all be depressed and like there's no point and actually i, I would assume chaos would uh come not there long after yeah Mm -hmm. yeah very curious stuff um and you know on the uh on the whole note of uh projection and how real those things might get um i thought it, it it would be worth bringing up at least um at least as an aside uh the the extent of possessions and exorcisms today and um because they're actually uh they're I mean, they're still very prevalent. Um, I, I'm, is my understanding that uh, beliefs in um, possession are on the rise, and so are exorcism rites, which is really curious. Um, Where are these happening? Like, is there like a specific place around the world that you can pinpoint right now? Uh, I'm not sure. That's a good question, but I know that those um, that uh, that statement does come from the Vatican, so I assume mm-hmm. that it's probably all over the world. But um, um, and it's, it, they it's seem really to be changing their tune a lot. I saw something that's like, oh, like Jesus might not be coming back or something like that. <laughs> this just <laughs> in. Yeah, well. Um, he might not be I, coming back, folks. <laughs> I'm the first to admit that the Vatican is a uh, so the classical propaganda matrix. I mean, I was raised Roman Catholic. I went to Catholic schools until I was in like fifth grade. So you don't, you don't have to explain it to me. <laughs> I, although I will say the moral scaffolding that was that my you know, ethics and morals are built upon. I, that was all part of that. So I can't really say too many negative things. Cause I did learn yeah, a lot of po- good things. It made me a good person, yeah. I think in some regards. Yeah. Well, I think that there is a lot of esoteric value to Christianity, but I think that, um, uh, the common, uh, the exoteric interpretation that people have today is very limiting. And I think that while we're on this note real quick, I think that one of the biggest limiting factors of religion is, assuming that your religion is right um i mean the uh yeah the um there's a little bit of truth to be had in all religion uh i feel like and and that's not to get too new agey and say that all religions have the same truths because they do not and they uh uh different religions facilitate uh different types of experiences really but um to say that one is completely invalidated um because because your holy book says so is pretty wild but um uh, that's really neither here nor there in the long run. Um, in terms of uh, possession and exorcisms, I wanted to wanted to bring this up just to further illustrate how 
Um, Listen, to especially it. I'm super huh? skeptical, so try and change my mind right now. Oh sure, okay. So so uh, I'm I'm extremely skeptical as well. Uh, when of I this pro- spe- of this one specifically, this is like Bigfoot to me, where I could see some aspects, but I think that there's probably some, you know, mechanistic explanation for what's going on. Well, um, to boil it down, it really does appear to be that um, a quote-unquote possession is what happens when um, an accumulative amount of different um, mental illness factors, you know, they compound and it creates, it, uh, it, it, it snowballs into something else. And to articulate that a little more, um, see, a good place to start is well i mean obviously there if if we're talking about uh the catholic tradition here um i do think that there's plenty to be said about the whole like transference kind of process where a person is more willing to believe that they might be uh under some sort of demonic influence because they're catholic or something like that and especially when you have the influence of the priest around but that's a good point yeah but honestly i think that uh, in a strange roundabout way, actually lends credence to the experience, um, and not in the way that you would necessarily think, uh, but more so hearkening back to what we've been talking about with um, um, the projection process and how it might be multiplied uh, by certain types of like-minded people in the same environment who are entering different or uh, uh, similar uh, altered states of consciousness. And I mean, that's what you're doing with a ritual and ceremony, and especially uh, with this example of exorcisms. I mean, that is the class that's quintessential ritual and ceremony right there. And I think that um, so setting aside what is or isn't a demon in this case, for example, just in terms of phenomenology, I mean, you still it, it you know, at least um, in terms of the tradition there are plenty of things that couldn't be explained by epilepsy and um you know like the whole um telepathy of innermost guilt and hidden strength that the possessed have there's still account uh, you know, stories of levitation to this day and uh, all the different voices and things there are uh, even some telekinesis involved what about like ergot too from like the idea of that caused like possibly the salem witch trials to People probably still ingest or gotten don't know it, and that can cause uh, seizures, and it can cause you know it has to be processed a certain way to become you know because it's the um, precursor to LSD, but you, you can't uh, it alone is actually toxic as uh, a neurotoxin. So uh, you right. take the idea of something that's possibly hallucinogenic and causing convulsive seizures. I mean that could be another explanation if it's somewhere that's not in the evolved part of the world. Sure. Yeah. And I'm not necessarily, I'm certainly not convinced that anyone who was persecuted uh, during the Salem witch trials was actually a witch. But um, that being said, I was tripping their ass off though. You could, you could see some magic happen for sure. Oh yeah. Oh, for sure. I think that's a really viable explanation too, but um, there's a, there's a book coming out in October by a, a Dr. Richard Gallagher, who is a, Ivy League uh, psychiatrist who has still maintained a practice um, throughout the decades, uh, and he's been subsequently also working with uh, the Catholic Church for um, uh, to vet out uh, the difference between mental illness and uh, uh, 
like actual possession cases. Sure. And it's interesting because um, he's written some material, but this will be the first book coming out. And he's got some uh, interesting anecdotes out thus far um, that I guess the takeaways would be um, if you're taking this story from the the sources it's given, uh, you know, just the state of exorcism as we know it right now, um, the, the Catholic Church uh, and its exorcist priests, uh, I mean, they take these rites very seriously. And the last thing they want to do is uh, misdiagnose someone and actually perform an exorcism on someone who's just epileptic. Because, I mean, this there was there's already a case of this happening with uh, Annalise Michelle in uh, Germany in the mm. 70s. I mean, those priests were charged with manslaughter. Um, in a way, because, too, if you believe it. I mean, it's ritual magic. Right. Right. And, uh, and, and I, I really think that there are hypnotic qualities at play when, uh, if, you know, cause, uh, uh, possessed patients will, you know, even bear wounds of Christ and stuff like that. They'll have like the like demonic stigmata and they'll, they'll vomit out crazy things like living creatures or, or, uh, crucifixion nails and stuff. And I'm not necessarily convinced that any of this is happening on, um, on a on a literal level, but when you hear about these accounts, and you, you hear about priests like picking these things up, and in many accounts I've read, these things just kind of degrade like dust. So they're interacting with these things, and people are seeing synchronized interactions. Mm. But uh, so I, I yeah, I really think that there's some sort of um, this mental state being conjured. But but so that in mind, let's talk about actual demons a little bit here. Um, now, I'm definitely, I'm not like coming at this even from a Christian angle in particular. I'm just really curious about the uh, the phenomenology of it. Um, and, you, you know, so you can find, because epilepsy isn't just associated with, uh, with possession throughout history. It's also associated uh, to um, like religious uh, insight and mystical experiences and stuff as well. So you can find great visionaries throughout history right. that have, um, that have had, uh, epilepsy um and you know so some cases are a little more disputed than, the, than others because it's so far back in the historical timeline but you know there's people from like michelangelo to dostoevsky and tolstoy um there's dante is supposed to have had it and a lot lots of other julius caesar but there are also um at, uh, curious to note uh lots of i don't know about a lot but several serial killers that have had a uh, uh, epilepsy and in some cases temporal lobe epilepsy which is especially interesting because temporal lobe epilepsy is the type of um of the condition that is uh focalized to the point of brain uh to the point in the brain that seems to stimulate a lot of these mystical experiences mm. uh, there's a uh, vs ramachandran who wrote phantoms in the brain um who also did a lot of the sleep paralysis work he has a lot to say about that but um now um uh, some of the serial killers that uh have had epilepsy throughout history of uh, first off right out the gate Richard Ramirez diagnosed with temporal lobe epilepsy and that guy straight up worshiped the devil before committing his crimes uh we also have the son of Sam you know David Berkowitz who Well these are these are put to point out too these are a lot older than just the Catholic Church these come from ancient Sumer you know Pazuzu and Exactly. Uh, you know, a lot of yeah. these 
ancient demons. Demons don't come from, and even the word daemon is was used in ancient Greece a lot to just mean like an external spirit. It didn't necessarily mean something that was malevolent either. Well, yeah, one hundred percent. You hit the nail on the head. Um, and and yeah, and especially given given the the deeper context of demonology throughout history. Um, there's a, there's, I do think there's a lot of weight to it because again, like sleep paralysis itself is a major catalyst for, uh, our tradition of demonology as we know it throughout history. Um, and the apparitions that are found with sleep paralysis. So, Mm. um, but yeah, so, um, there's some other serial killers as well. Like, uh, Gacy was said to have had, um, um, epilepsy throughout his childhood and there was also um, the, I think it was the Green River Killer. I, that might not be his, his nickname, but Arthur Shawcross. The dude had a cyst on his temporal lobe mm-hmm. and was involved with cannibalism and all these other things. So it's really curious to note that in every case I found, um, you, you know, granted, I'm definitely not the end-all, be-all source to this, but in every case I found where a serial killer was uh, uh, shown to definitely have epilepsy or have had reports of epilepsy throughout their history, uh, they were always um, so they were always very, very interested in what you could call the metaphysical, for lack of a better term. Mm-hmm. Um, so it does seem to it, to be, you know, just to put a cap on a, on a, a lot of. Uh, the threads that we've talked about that biology opens the door for things that um, uh, might potentially piggyback off of our experiences. And potentially this is why um, this is why we have this evolutionary storehouse of the collective unconsciousness and why um, why ideas have this uh, viral nature to them and um, and why they incubate, you know, uh, I, I think that, um, I think there are things that are, you know, you guys seen Donnie Darko? Yeah, yeah, it's one of Maurice's favorites. I like it a lot too. Yeah, that's one of my all-time favorites. It's um, well, uh, and one of my all-time favorite movie scenes in general is when they're sitting in the theater and Donnie has that trance state and he's looking at Frank as Frank's watching him watch the movie and he's just like, "Why are you wearing that stupid bunny suit?" And Frank just asks him, "Why are you wearing that stupid man suit?" Hmm. And um. Yeah, I I really do uh, think that that is a really poignant um, allegory, I guess, uh, for under understanding this phenomena. I think that there, I think that these things echo uh, pieces of us that uh, and our evolutionary drives and pressures, um, and they wouldn't be there without those drives and pressures. But again, that that's not to say that that's where the story ends. Well, listen, man. Let's let's wrap it up here. Do you actually? Do you do? Uh, do you want to do like ten more minutes? But we'll do it on our Patreon. Sure, I'm down. All right. So, and we'll definitely have you on again. Let's call this part one. I'll have I'll read the rest of your book, and we'll have you back on sometime in the near future, and we'll do like a part two type thing because there's just a ton of stuff that we didn't even get to. Um, yeah. And it was a fun awesome. conversation, man. I really enjoyed. Uh, you know, this whole back and forth. But uh, so check out uh, Anthony's book. I have the link down below. And uh, it's on Kindle. Definitely check it out. It's actually, it's pretty relatively uh, inexpensive too. So if you have a couple bucks to spare and you love these topics, go go buy that. Go check it out. Um, and uh, yeah, check out our you know website at mindescapepodcast.com. Check out our Patreon. We're about to do an episode with Anthony here at uh, patreon.com slash mindescapepodcast for $2 a month. Uh, you will get... Uh, 
you know, exclusive content to some of our uh, stuff. We have audio and visual or uh, audio and uh, YouTube videos on there as well. And also just one more plug, indrasweb.org. If you want to, uh, if you're looking for an app that, you know, to talk about all this kind of stuff on, we created it. Uh, It'll be ready soon. If you want to sign up for an alert, just go to indrasweb.org and you will get an alert when it goes live. And uh, yeah, thanks again, Anthony. And uh, like I said, we'll definitely have you back on in the future. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, sorry, I forgot what I was saying a couple times there. <laughs> You're fine, man. Yeah, we we all do it. Roll with the punches. I've just gotten good at, at rolling to the next thing and pretending like it didn't exist. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, all right, you yeah. guys stay safe out there. We love you, and we'll catch you next time. Peace. Take care, guys. Peace.